everybody. Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And today is Tuesday, first show in May. Today, wait, wait, wait. Oh, it's only the 3rd. I was going to say May the 4th. No, that's tomorrow. Yeah. That's tomorrow. And uh, anyway, if this is your first time joining us, thank you so much for being here and giving us a shot uh, to give you a little bit of uh, an idea of what to expect. We simply talk about whatever we want. Um, and we we've don't plan been anything. Talking more than usual for the last week, though, because we've been on vacation in mm-hmm. Hawaii for the last week. So sometimes we sit down and we haven't had a substantive conversation all week. And I feel like we've been sitting by the pool, reading or listening to podcasts, and then talking about what we're thinking about or current events as we go. Yeah, because we have time. We're not distracted by life because we're literally sitting in a pool. Um, more on that in a minute. So anyway, yes, we don't, like Molly said, we don't plan to rehearse. Our conversations are pretty raw. We have four children, ages 11 through three, and we live in Montana. And, and we homeschool about, them? Yes, we do. And uh, we both work from home. And I think that's it. So yeah, we were in Hawaii uh, celebrating your parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Yes, although their anniversary is not until July. But as my dad says, so we can do another trip. You don't leave Montana in the summer, so <laughs> which is which I tend to agree I, with. I, yeah, yeah, Montana is pretty delightful in the summer. So we did Hawaii instead of in the dead of summer at the tail end of winter, which meant that snorkeling was not great. It was still winter snorkeling conditions in Kauai where we were, which was kind of a bummer because. So one of the things I was going to ask you today, uh huh, was top. One or two highlights for you, either of things we did or saw, or just of things that happened or that you felt while we were in Hawaii. That's not super hard. Um, First thing that comes to mind, and this is really, really ridiculous, but it was kind of a delightful surprise. We decided to drive into the Waimea Canyon, which is, you know epic the grand canyon of the pacific right off of the nepali coast there no no, no. Um, oh yeah okay yeah and we it's kind of drizzly out that your guidebook said drive up here and if you know you can't see much wait a couple minutes because the rain will clear so i walk up there with i think i was with titus at the time because you we we were moving a little bit quicker getting out of the car than the others. And um, so we hiked up to the top of this because we had a boy's car and a girl's car we did we hiked well except for me I was driving the oh, girl's car. Oh, you were car. in the, boy, the girl's car. Yeah. That's right. So we hike up to the Overlook, and I look out, and I'm like, whoa, this this is on my Apple TV screensaver. <laughs> and That it, wasn't actually the Waimea Canyon. That was the Nepali coast. Okay, well, But it was right. at the end we of drove, the Waimea we Canyon in, yeah, exactly. drive. Yeah. So what happened was, so if you guys don't know, I my studio is in the basement of our house, and I have a... My old, when I was doing film production, I had a 55-inch or 60-inch, 65-inch, really nice OLED television that I was using for color correction and grading. And when I shut down my company, I kept the television. And it's hanging on my wall. And I typically just, my window, my studio has no rooms, nothing. And I just leave it the TV kind of on because it cycles through all those really cool screensavers. And one of those shots is right through the bottom of that, of that Canyon, uh, and a really slow motion kind of drone shot. And so it was just, 
That was a super delightful surprise to see something that I'm staring at on TV in the flesh. I was like, whoa, this is rad. The other thing was um, taking that boat ride up the coastline. That was just incredible. And of course, they point out where all the Jurassic Park scenes happen. So now I'm like, I got to go back and watch Jurassic Park. Third, um, I really enjoyed the start of our um, of our hell trip uh, fly home. The when going out and taking the car and just driving around the island and visiting and wandering. Because you guys, we had to, we checked out of our hotel at ten in the morning, and our flight left Lahui Airport at ten p.m. So we couldn't swim, couldn't go to beaches because we didn't have towels anymore. But we had almost. Nor did we want to travel in sandy beachy clothes. Yeah, and so we had almost twelve hours to kill, and a lot of the countryside that we had not seen. And so we just drove. We drove all the almost to the very end of the road. Yeah, which was super. I mean, just I want to go back and I want to spend a lot of time like camping, staying in different spots, doing different things. Like I would love to wander. Ah, can I wreck? Ah, you guys, they don't do ferries between the islands anymore. You have to fly. I was looking it up. They shut it down for some environmental impact stupidity thing. It was this ferry that was supposed to go between all the islands. It would have been so cool to rent a van down there or, you know, get really crazy and ship our van down there and then spend like two months wandering the islands living out of a van. That would be amazing, but you can't. It also would be a lot more economical because we were curious how much... It would cost to rent a house in Hanalei, which is on the very northern coast. And we went out on this cool pier out on the water. And it's all misty looking into these incredibly rugged mountains and cliffs and whatnot. And there were some pretty cool houses right on the beach. And I found one of them on Verbo. And it was probably on half an acre or so but it was Mm -hmm. a one bedroom one bath cottage and it was something like a thousand dollars a night and so when you start getting up to the something that would accommodate a family our size and this is beachfront it's a little bit less the further away you get but but really in order to afford to have our family doing a trip like that we would need to be living out of a van or camping because verbos are so insanely expensive okay and hawaii i've got to bring this i got to mention this because it kind of blew my mind a little bit hawaii by itself is really really expensive and uh and on top of being on in hawaii we were staying compliments of your wonderful parents we were staying at the sheraton resort and eating mostly resort food for better or worse mostly worse um i mean it was good but after even after like day four your dad's like i'm i'm sick of those greasy fries you know, when the uh, kids don't want to finish their plate of fries, you know, you have to switch things up a little bit. So anyway, I was looking at the prices in a lunch at a hamburger for lunch, just a standard cheeseburger for lunch at the resort in Hawaii was $18. If you go to two restaurants, which I will remain, I will keep unnamed here in Billings, Montana. 
that are like the step above Applebee's. Step above Applebee's, standard regular lunch spots for most people. Like if you're doing a business lunch, you're just grabbing something. Hey, let's go here. We get good food, etc. A hamburger there, a cheeseburger there will run you $17. Exactly the same as at a high-end resort in Hawaii. I think it's starting to dawn on me how expensive it is right now to live in Montana. Yeah. Montana. Oh. Like oh, I was talking you'll to somebody. You'll get it when like, you nope. get our grocery it was cheaper, credit card bill this month. It was cheaper to buy food at the airport in Denver to buy lunch at the airport in Denver than it would be to buy lunch for a family of six here in Billings. I was yeah. blown away. Anyway, um, all that said, it was a great trip. And so um, my high, what was your yeah what was your highlight? Well, the the thing that kind of stands out to me the most is it's been fun to experience travel like that especially with our two older kids as they're getting older. For one thing, I was telling somebody at our, our our adventure club outing this morning that this is the first time we've stayed in a hotel with our kids where sleeping has not been a huge issue. And by sleeping, I mean somebody won't go to sleep because they're so young they can't be told, put your head on your pillow and stay quiet until you're asleep. Now, the time change helped that dramatically because six o'clock there was 10 o'clock for their bodies. And so by the time we finished an early dinner, they were ready just to be poured into bed and were out within seconds. But, but I have very low expectations of sleeping in a hotel with my kids. I think that has been established by when Titus was two... And Lily was nine months, ten months old. We flew to New York City for my brother's wedding. And Lily cried for the entire flight from Denver to New York City. And I, she, uncomfortable ears. It was her nap time, whatever. We got in there then super late at night. And then had the whole ride to the airport or to the hotel and then the hotel did not have a room for us because they'd overbooked it. And so we're standing in the lobby with two totally exhausted kids. We finally get in there and they don't have a crib for Lily. And it's such a small hotel room oh. that we literally, the crib got wedged in between the bed and the wall. And that's and so it barely, I think I had to move the bed a little bit. And so then literally wake up. We're the, eating Italian food at like 1230. On New the York edge of time, the bed. on the edge of the bed, hoping our daughter goes to sleep because I found this a takeout Italian place downstairs. Fortunately, we had a little bit of wine, so that was helpful. But, but we, there was no room to sit. There's no sit room to sit. Bed. So we're sitting on the edge of the bed, spilling Italian sauce, red sauce on the white sheets. But but then I was sleeping on the side of the bed where the crib was, and you literally wake up in the middle of the night to her. Three feet, less than three feet, you know, six inches from my face, smiling at me. And then she's up and it's a hotel. And so if she's up and crying, it wakes everybody else up. And so I spent most of that trip for my brother's wedding in the middle of the night with her in a stroller walking up and down the hallways or walking in circles in the lobby downstairs because she wasn't sleeping. It was either she doesn't sleep and therefore nobody else sleeps or she doesn't sleep and mom doesn't sleep, but keeps her from crying and everybody else can sleep. Right. 
So that's my, that's kind of my, <coughs> when I think about sleeping in hotels with kids, I realize that was a long time ago, but I had this gut. Oh, I wasn't looking forward to Instinct this reaction. I mean, I two hotels you yeah. you knew that it would be hard i was looking forward to the trip i knew it was going to be hard i knew the trip home was going to be awful and it actually turned out to be quite it was quite better nice. than it could have been it was a lot better than it could have been but with the older kids i i really enjoyed so my dad is a big scuba diver and titus in particular has really wanted to get to be able to scoot to snorkel and scuba so my dad can take him on his trips and things like that. And this was his first chance. We never we never bought and had them practice snorkeling in my parents' hot tub or anything. So we rented snorkel gear on Tuesday and went up to this little park called Lydgate Park, which is some the the surf the beat the waves hit the be almost all the beaches in Kauai hard enough that it was hard to find a good place that wasn't too rough to snorkel, which was kind of disappointing because Lydgate, some a couple decided that there needed to be a family-friendly beach in Kauai. So they paid to have these giant stones dropped in actually two semicircles, one for really little kids that's smaller and another one, and fish hang around on the edges of the rocks. And so you can snorkel. It's a little bit cloudy, but you can snorkel without big waves and you can see fish. And so we took the kids up there on Tuesday because part of the big boat trip involved snorkeling off of the Nepali coast. And we wanted to give the kids experience snorkeling. And Titus and Lily nailed it right away. It was it was just very cool for me as a mom to see my kids who, especially Titus, when he did swimming lessons, he struggled with putting his face in the water. He failed he didn't fail basic swim lessons as many times as Elise has, but all of our kids just tried it and did well at it. And the next day when we were on the Nepali coast tour and we get to the, to the spot where we're going to snorkel and the crew on the boat is handing out the snorkel equipment and Tito and Lily just pop their masks and their to their snorkels in and their fins on and hop off the back of the boat and Lily's a hundred yards away from the boat, out with my dad, looking at something cool. And I commented to one of the guides. I said, "This is the second time they've ever snorkeled." And she was like, "No way! They were fearless, but appropriate—not like fearless in a dumb way. Mm. But they—they they acted like they knew what they were doing. They were confident and they were skilled at it. And it was just really cool. And and then they got to enjoy the fruits of their efforts." That they they hopped back on the boat and they'd seen these cool things and they'd enjoyed it and they enjoyed the internal satisfaction of having that success at things. And so for me, that was that was a highlight that I think will probably stick with me was not necessarily anything that, that we saw or did, but the experience as a mom of watching my kids try something new and really thrive at it. And then them, you know, that, that does something for them, too, in terms of their... I was... I... Yes. Titus and Lily took to it extremely well. I was actually more surprised by Elise just jumping in and doing it, given how scared she is. Like, even out in the ocean, she put on her snorkel 
her, mm-hmm. her fins, or she calls them flippers. She put on her flippers, her snorkel mask, and jumped right into the ocean mm-hmm. and started snorkeling around. And I was like... Well, she did. We brought life jackets for Whoa. them. So she didn't have to worry about swimming. She just had to worry about the breathing part. Right. So that was, so that was super. But that was like, I would have expected one or two of our children to be completely terrified being on the ocean. Yeah. Just, oh, it was, it, we were no, not right. wading in from a beach. It was jumping into water. I'm going to put in two links in the show notes while I'm thinking about it. And if we mention anything interesting on the show that we feel like you guys would be benefit to you guys, we'll put it in the show notes. The first thing uh, for this trip, there were two uh, huge wins if you guys are looking for making your travel plans easier. One is specific to the tropics and snorkeling, and the other is just kind of in general. Uh, your mom, Molly's mom, Kitty, got a, hoping to ease some of the travel stress, bought us a collapsible wagon it collapses to about the size of a pack and play and folds out and is huge um and it was brilliant we used it everywhere all the time and you can you can gate check it on a plane like a stroller they count it as a stroller so you can you can unpack it put all your luggage in it haul your kid around or in this case like faith slept fell asleep when we left hawaii and not wake up again until we were getting on the flight for from LA to from Denver. LA to Denver, and there was a, like a five hour layover in LA. So that was really the wagon was really awesome. Because so we pulled we Jr. carried her off of the plane sleeping, and we nestled her in with, with a bunch of sweatshirts and, and blankies in the wagon, and she literally slept in the airport in the wagon for like five hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was rad. And the other thing is Molly found this inflatable snorkel tube thing. It's called a reef tourer and she got it on Amazon. But what it did was it enabled Faith, who's three, she spent a ton of time on this thing, like head straight down in the tube, looking down into the water looking for fish. Yeah, because it's a it's a clear it's a tube that's got a clear bottom on it. And so you can hold it under the water and it helps you to avoid the ripples on the top of the water to see what's going on so you can wait around just holding it or you can buy an extra inflatable thing which i did and blow it up with the with the tube inside of it and then float around so yeah i actually at, at lidgate i put faith on it and i snorkeled next to her just towing her around and she just had her face down in it and she didn't have to have her face in the water or anything but she still got to see of decent variety. She she didn't appreciate it, but at least she wasn't left she thought, out. Yeah, she thought it was super, like, she was like, Dad, I saw a fish! Saw yeah. a fish! It's like, that's awesome. Yeah. That's kind of super Which rad. We had wanted, when we went to Hawaii when Titus was three, and we had great snorkeling experiences, it, Titus was totally left out because he wasn't, he couldn't figure out a snorkel. And at that time, we were like, what if somebody were to make a boogie board or some sort of floaty thing with a viewing window in it. And now they do actually make, they call them looky boards that do that. And they, there's a variety of different mm-hmm. options, but for a number of reasons. This one was kind of rad. Then Molly, and then at one point, Molly, you took it out. I couldn't actually, I, I could use it, mm-hmm. but I didn't because I discovered that for whatever reason, that particular angle on that tube or whatever, looking straight down to the ocean kind of made me nauseous. Yeah. So I, <laughs> 
I, I floated around on it like a I did take it out the second time we took the kids to Lydgate because the waves were so big that they were washing over my snorkel tube. And about every five breaths, I was inhaling salt water. And after mm. having to like bring my head up and gasp and gasp, and then like the back of my throat was just burning, I was like, I no, I'm done. So I took that out for a while and you know, did a little tour with it just with my flippers on. So yeah, that was fun. Funny. Okay, so that's our Hawaii recap. We have I have a we Molly came down at like twenty after three and we usually have to have dinner at four. So I'm not sure if we're gonna give you a full show. Maybe I can we can make it up to them and do two shows this week. What what? Yeah, we probably could. I don't know. Well the other thing I was just planning to talk about or see is what interesting things you listened to or read while we were in Hawaii. Ooh, um, yeah. So I didn't, there's two things I read. I brought a bunch of stuff to listen to and read, but nothing of which I, uh, Nothing of which, like you guys, would be very interested in. There's a, there's an Anthony Ryan short story series called The Seven Swords, um, that uh, I picked up the latest book for on my Kindle. My Kindle died for a while and then suddenly it resurrected again. So I don't know. It works great. So I was reading that a little bit. But the other interesting thing, and now that you bring it up, I don't know if I have, if I can pull up. Um, I can. Um, so I listened to a podcast on Bloomberg that featured a couple of their called from their podcast Odd Lots, and it featured Sam Bankman Fried, who founded FTX.com, which is a crypto exchange and marketplace, and then um, Matt Levine, another editor, crypto editor, big name. But anyway, he des- he was describing. I and this is a little bit nerdy. You guys can zone out if you're not into crypto. And I realized that one of you on Telegram asked me to send you a quick primer, and I just haven't. I just totally failed. I'll get on that this week. I promise. Um, I won't take the time to look who you were, but I have it recorded in Telegram. So anyway, he said one quote. One takeaway from the whole conversation is that DeFi, decentralized finance, might be more similar to Bitcoin than a lot of people thought, deriving its value from collective agreement. That the thing, in this case the box, or yield farming protocol, is worth something rather than deriving value from a fundamental usefulness, unquote. Now, there's been a lot of... The reason I find that interesting is because I'm currently involved in a really cool yield farming liquidity pool to kind of build some community with uh, with the Theta Fuel, uh, on the Theta Fuel network, and it's, it's giving me some really great returns. But it's that concept that this has value because a whole bunch of people say it has value. Which is the dollar also. Which is the dollar. Right. So, and it's, you know, and I look at it like economics 101. Like, look, if I need a shoe and you're going to sell me that shoe for what I think is an appropriate price, then, hey, we have a deal that has the value of whatever we've agreed upon. Mm -hmm. So it's super scary and super awesome. But I really, really enjoyed that particular podcast discussion about kind of the new way people are some of the new way that decentralized finance is working so i really i really dug that i know it's super nerdy super wild and i i'm sure we talked about other things but um that's what i read and listened to and literally that was it okay and you're gonna post a link to that for the i'll post a link to that that podcast to the fellow yeah fellow 
economists and or blockchain crypto nerds. Nerds. Okay. Well, I read all. I finished the book Cork Dork, which. Oh, man, you guys. Continued to be. You guys, I I almost want to do some sort of reading club with this book, partly because it's so interesting just from a science perspective. She She does this deep dive in the middle to how wine descriptions are created and her she gets really disillusioned because all of the essences that you're supposed to be smelling when you sniff wine she does this huge nose like training for her nose she has this regimen of sniffing like 40 oils essential oils or smells every morning and being able to identify them and she has this other regimen with her husband where she he adds specific quantities of whiskey and different essences to glasses of drinks and she has to be able to identify well that one was 14% alcohol that one was 13% alcohol and you added the vanilla oil to this one and the rosemary oil I mean that would be obvious but you get the point so she's because she's working up to take this big test where she has to be able to identify things but so she's she starts thinking that there's a lot of, how do I say this without expletives, BS in describing wines. It's good, your book club is not going to like have a bunch of teetotaling fundamentalists. Right, <laughs> right. But, but she, she's like, one person is going to smell this and one person's going to smell that. And whatever the sommelier at the restaurant wants to put on it, it's very flowery. And so a, a popular phrase, particularly for white wines, is mineral or minerally or minerality. And she's like, it means absolutely nothing. If you go around and ask a dozen sommeliers what minerality in a white wine means, they'll all give you a different example or they'll all give you a different explanation. It means nothing. And so she then she goes into different schools of wine of wine describing. And there's this hippie that she visits in California who started the smelling and naming it according to other smells and then there's people who want it strictly according to i can't i'm not going to be able to look it up right now but the actual chemical compounds and how they smell like the smell of after the rain has a particular chemical compound smell and so she's like do you want to call it this chemical compound scientific name or do you want to say it smells like after the rain and there are wine people who think you should call it that chemical compound smell. And she's like, yeah, that's going to sell a lot of wine at a wine bar. And then there's other people who want this very flowery, evocative experience description of it. And there's anyway, she gets really disillusioned with that. And then she feels like the whole wine world in general, that she goes to this big expo where they're selling there are something like 80 different additives that are legally allowed in the United States to wine that don't have to be on the label. And that includes something to make it more purple, something to make it taste thicker, something to make it taste thinner, something to make it more acidic, something to add, you know, it's been aged in these giant steel barrels and then you're going to add oak to it. Anyway, so all of these different things. And then she gets kind of disillusioned with just the mass winemaking market in general. And then, so she goes through this kind of crisis, at least the way, she's really good at writing the book anyway, to her narrative that she crafts. And she gets to the, kind of her crisis point, and she comes back, oh, and then also the other crisis point that she has is she worms her way into getting to 
tail sommeliers at two Michelin-starred restaurants in New York City. And she follows these people around, and they have these very, very strict protocol about what they can wear and how they stand and what angle they stand with the person and the words that they use and, you know, what side of the person you stand on and how you circulate, you know, you go around the table clockwise or counterclockwise and the words that you use to talk to someone and do you, how do you assess their price point without being crass and how do you encourage them to try new things while helping them feel like they're in charge. Anyway, there, so there's this whole uh, protocol that she thinks is a little bit ridiculous. And then she leaves that world to a more, I guess, normal American world. And she begins to realize that there's there's reasons for this. And one of the main guys that she follows went from theater to being a sommelier. And she says... He's actually still acting as a sommelier. Hmm. And and but not in a bad way. He believes that he's serving people well. I think I read this passage aloud to you mm-hmm. next you to the pool, but he believes that he's serving people well by by all of the different customs that he follows in serving them wine and he follows the same customs and she's she's he calls it like the great democratizer or something and she's like yeah once you can get in to this expensive restaurant and can afford a meal here then whether you're going to spend four hundred dollars for this meal or you're going to spend ten thousand dollars for this meal morgan the sommelier is going to treat you the same and you're never going to see the chef who made this meal unless you're a really 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 high-end customer the servers are supposed to kind of blend into the background the sommelier is the one who humanizes the meal for you there it is the nepali coast just (laughs) Just popped up on the screensaver because i remember looking at that going i've seen this before is that you guys it is truly incredible it's these these lush lush jungle Cliffs just going literally four thousand feet straight out of the ocean. It's 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 wild. You can't describe it other than to actually see it and experience it. Anyway, so so the thing that I just really got me at the end of this, which if you know us or you've been listening to us for a long time. It goes back to we love what hospitality and sharing a meal does for people. Like, just to give you, uh, we, our small group, our church small group, hosts meals once a month in members' homes. And it's kind of a high pressure thing because you're supposed to invite friends or neighbors to these small group meals. And there's so many of us that it ends up being a meal for 40 people or so which is stretches our homes there's folding tables set up in living rooms and the point is that our small group is helping provide a context of hospitality and informality if you will and critical mass in order for you to befriend your neighbors and get to know them and be explicitly christian about it so it's not a bible study but it's my bible study is having a dinner would you like to come to dinner uh, you know, something, my my church small group or something. So you're supposed to be explicit that it's your church group. But then we give, we create conversation. And 
I'm thinking specifically of the one that we had last month. Our, the hosts had a chance to, over a meal, speak with their neighbors in a way that they had not really gotten to know them on a level of before. There's something about sharing a meal together that is uh, almost sacramental. And I mean that in a, it's a tangible way of experiencing something that otherwise is intangible and very special and holy, which is human to human relationship. And a normal restaurant experience remains very depersonalized. You know, you go to Applebee's and, you know, your server comes up and says your name, but they, they're not interested in your name. There's no relationship happening there. But the in this book, this particular sommelier named Morgan really sees his role as helping people feel seen and known and human in in this little microcosm of the whole world. And so all of his trying to guide you, and he has, another thing that was really interesting about this book is she has several fairly prolonged sections about almost how transcendent wine is. And, I, and it just really, um, I don't know, it, it, I'm not going to be able to find it because I didn't bookmark it off the top of my head. But but it really made me sad for America because we have so we've come so far from Um. from actually understanding that we are spiritual beings and that we were made to worship something and that we can direct our hearts to a good object of worship that will fulfill us. And people walk around with this idea, with it, with this sense that yes, I'm an empty in need of filling, but they have no idea. As who is it? Who says we have a god shaped vacuum in our hearts? I don't remember. I want to say Pascal, Blaise Pascal could have been Calvin. God. <clears throat> so anyway, so our hearts, we have this god. Somebody I've never heard of, or just attribute it to Calvin. We're good. It's I don't know. Calvin's a lot of this stuff. Um. But but we have this God-shaped hole in our hearts, and people don't even recognize right now that we're an empty in need of filling. And a lot of people haven't even heard that message. Like you could tell, you could Pascal. you could draw you could draw those parallels, and I mean I've had those moments where you've drawn parallels, and people's minds are blown. Yeah. So what people are looking for, at least these sommeliers who get around and do these blind tastings where what that is, is these guys who are training their noses and their palates to pass tests to get a certain level of certification. You bring a bottle of wine hidden and then you pass it around to everybody else. You pour sip pours for everybody else and they have to try to figure out i mean it's nuts what these people figure out they have to figure out the vintage so when when it was made what kind of grape it is as well as old world new world what part of you know if it's on this side of the river versus that side of the river in france it's different and there's different clues that will help you understand that it's wild what some of these people can figure out from smelling and tasting wine but but they, they get together and they do this, but there's this spiritual quality that in this language that they use. And it's very hedonistic, for one thing, which t- 
tells me that our culture has lost a true sense of what's fulfilling and joyful. It's just me. And if it makes me happy, then I should do it because that's what is good for me. And it's essentially like that's the highest purpose that I can imagine for myself, the highest end to which I should achieve to sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. hearken back to Westminster Mm -hmm. Shorter Catechism 1. Everybody has a sense of or deeply needs to have a sense of what is your primary purpose. And in this book, she just touches on every now and then that the purpose people have this sense of needing to be recognized as human, to be treated with respect and dignity, which, by the way, is why we teach our kids, why I teach my kids that manners are important. Our kids don't have great manners. But in terms of like holding doors, saying please and thank you, it's a way of showing kindness and respect to other people in a societally understood way. You're speaking a language without saying words mm-hmm. that other people understand to mean this person is being kind and respectful to me. So that's why we, that's why manners are important. And that's one of the things that's of great value in the wine world and all of the customs and things like that. So anyway, Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker was really interesting, not just because of what I learned about wine, but also because of how she kind of dove into a bunch of philosophy in it. Well done. Okay. Well, and we're almost Let me a- read a little bit. Of, I'm just going to give a teaser for the <laughs> other book that I started reading <laughs> because I think people should start working <laughs> on getting this book for themselves. I also started reading Carl Truman's new book, Strange New World. I Guys, I even started reading this. I read through like page five and I digested everything. It's so I quickly. I know that I've talked about in the past trying to get through Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you were to put these two books side by side, you would see a striking aesthetic resemblance between the two. And that's because this is the layperson's version of the otherwise virtually unreadable tome that was <laughs> that is the rise and triumph of the modern self. I have read almost half of this book in the amount of time it would have taken me to read I'm not kidding you 5 to 6 pages of the other book because it's so dense. And this digests it for the average person and even gets into I mean the reason I wanted to throw this in, he goes through this the the string of philosophies that have taken hold in America. And his his goal is to help you understand why someone can say on the street to another person, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, or I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And people nod understandingly instead of going, you've completely lost your mind. And he's like, you know, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, that would have not even been a comprehensible sentence to them. And yet now it it's accepted by the majority of Americans. So he's like, what he's trying to ask what philosophical movements and stepping stones got us from here to there. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the middle of him of reading about the influence that he believes Marx had on getting us to this moment. Mm. And in talking about that what does it mean to be human and to have human nature? Marx believed the essence of human nature is work. And so if you don't have 
So you needed to be connected to and have fulfilling work, which is ironic to me because then everybody became a factory worker and didn't experience the fruits of their labor at all under <laughs> communism. But Marx, which if I ever got a chance to talk to Truman... Because that's fulfilling. Right. Well, so his, so Truman's example here is if you if you make a chair... And you don't sit in the chair or you don't sell the chair to someone who's going to enjoy it. You experience less joy in your work than if you make something that you then get to tangibly enjoy the fruits of. Because we are designed by God to to have satisfaction in the fruits of the labor that we do. But Marx boiled down human nature to being equivalent to the work that we do. And, um, that's, that's an interesting, I want, we don't have time to dive into all of this discussion, but when you think about what defines a man in American culture, or at least in the past, what we grew up with, people of my kids of my generation, what defined us was who we are. The first was question what out of we did. was what we did, you know, it defines, you know, what, what the first question out of your mouth is like, oh, so what do you do? Uh-huh. What do you do? What do you do? And that still plagues me to this day because I don't really do anything of value or that people would understand. So it's always a difficult question for me to ask, answer. But um, it's interesting that that comes from from Marx. Marx. Yeah. Anyway, I th- that man influenced a lot of modern thinking. Yeah, yeah. Because then the the rest of Marx is then dividing the into classes that you're in this constant cycle of oppressed versus oppressor which again yeah. that I, I i read this and i'm like I, I don't understand how this made sense to him because as soon as the oppressed class takes over the oppressing class then the roles, then are, the roles are reversed and you just have this vicious cycle mm-hmm. and did he not see that coming I, I mean or he might have seen it and decided that that's the maximum of where humanity can go from here. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't finished the section on Marx, so I don't know. Which is quite hopeless. So maybe that's why humanity is gravitating towards transhumanism and looking at technology to elevate us to the next level because this this old ideology is just fruitless. It like is. We're, just, we're just in a cycle of depression. Yeah. Oh, man, you guys, I feel like because we had to skip a week of talking, there's so much. I mean, so <laughs> much has happened in the last week. The whole Elon Musk thing, speaking of transhumanism. Oh, man. Hey, any of you guys out there. Major announcement. Who, major announcement. I might have signed up, re-signed up for Twitter again after five years or four years. <laughs> so I, I I won't. It's just, just not, it's not good for my soul. It's yeah. um, no, I, I actually. I don't know so, how it's going to So Anna yet. mentioned a it's been a, a while ago now, but when we were talking last time, we mentioned transhumanism. She mentioned in our Telegram channel that um, oh, what's the group? Chuck Colson, Breakpoint. What's the main Stone, John Stone Street? Anyway, you guys know who I'm talking about. Um, she mentioned that they're really they've been really big on sounding the alarm about transhumanism, and there's this funny divergence in the conservative world where some people are elated at Elon Musk and seeing him almost in messianic terms, like the Babylon Bee guys are just like Elon Musk probably poops gold in their brains right now. He, they just think the world of him because he singled them out as having been banned by Twitter. Mm. Um, but that'd be pretty cool. But, but they just, they don't see any, they don't have any qualms about 
him doing this where then there's other people who are like, look, he's featured by the World Economic Forum. He's super transhumanism. He thinks that we should all be vaccinated and have like chips in us to prove it. Like he, he actually he made a comment just today. I saw him make a comment about the reason the Freemasons fell. And I have not gone down the rabbit hole, the literal rabbit hole. It's not literal. Of, of a literal rabbit hole is actually a hole uh-huh. in the ground that okay. rabbits live in. <laughs> a literal mental rabbit hole. <laughs> you don't have a hole in your head that rabbits live in. It's not a literal. I will hole. if I go down the world of the Kennedys and the Freemasons and the global elite. Right. Order. In the world, and I'm not gonna. Form. I'm not gonna go there. But maybe he's one of them. Because he, he can be. He maybe he's leading the charge. I mean he's he's rub shoulders with the W E F all the time. I don't but know. Why? What what's what's driving people for this? I don't know. Anyway. Um yeah, lots happen we can talk about next week or later this week if Mo- if Molly's if, if we're I down. can make the time so. for it. Anyway, yes, forty six minutes in. If you like us, please share us with your friends, share your podcast on your social media profiles and refer us to other people. That's the biggest uh biggest uh, compliment we can get if you'd like to send us a message you can do so on our website www.toobusytoflush.com all grammatically correct or tb2f.com tb2f.com scroll down we've got a postcard option if you would like to join the conversation between shows we actually have a telegram group I'll include the link in the show notes to the group I'd like to give a special shout out to uh, Thomas who happened because of uh because of telegram we were actually able to meet up and have a beer in the denver airport on the way back (laughs) so that was super rad he gets props for being the first ever fan outside of family i think and maybe local friends to stranger fan no the guys in utah the guys in utah the guys in utah that's right i hooked up with them first chris and uh, andy um anyway you can join the conversation on telegram and uh, participate in whatever it is we're talking about over there so that's all I have for that. The links we mentioned in the show will include in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out and give us a ping. That said, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>